The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello everyone and welcome to Shackles Burlap and lies i'm your host ethan gilson and i want to say thank you to everyone for listening to episode one we're very excited to be producing this podcast and today i have a friend of mine named yana who i'm gonna let her introduce herself <laughs> hi everyone my name is yana kiriakopoulos and i am a rigger originally from providence rhode island and now i live in the netherlands Sweet. And uh, I've known Yana for quite a few years. She's actually uh, one of two people who have taken my rigging class more than once. So either I'm a bad teacher and she had to do it twice to to understand what I was trying to articulate, or it was so good she decided to take it twice. Um, anyway, uh, how this podcast is going to go is I have some questions for Yana. We're going to have a discussion. We're going to see where things go. So the... You already answered the first question, which was, who are you? How did you you get into rigging? Uh, Well, I am kind of, I hate that question so much, but it's it's fine. Um, It's because there was no direct route, and I had never intended to be a rigger in the first place. I was intending on majoring in um, English literature. (laughs) at Community College of Rhode Island. And I took a side job in the costume shop because I needed money and I knew how to sew. Directly across the costume shop was the scene shop. And I looked at those people building sets and said, I would like to do that. And then that led to me working in small venues around Providence doing sound. And then one day somebody said, you should go work at Mohegan Sun uh, because you'll make better money. And that was the first time that I ever saw riggers. And I looked up at the ceiling and saw a bunch of guys walking the beams and said, I would like to do that. And uh, a couple of months later, uh, I pulled my first point. So it was a very indirect process. (laughs) Yeah. And I dropped out of college <laughs> shortly after that. I uh, I mentioned in the uh, pre-release episode, episode 00, that um, I made the comment of uh, sometimes the path isn't always a straight line for a lot of people. You know, and in that podcast, I mentioned I started as a lighting person. Um, I've always been a gearhead. And my background was engineering. I got into lighting design. I went that path for a while, but that kind of ended up shifting back towards the technical side and rigging. So I don't think it's unusual that your path wasn't a straight line from, you know, waking up one day and going, I want to be a rigger and then pulling points. So that's not so unusual. Um, What is unusual to say about yourself in these days is that you're a female rigger and that is something (laughs) exactly and 
quite honestly, a lot of us talk about how, you know, the the live entertainment business is, you know, the wild frontier and we're still the cowboys. But within our industry, rigging and specifically upriggers and touring ringers is still predominantly men. So what do you think have been some of your challenges as a woman rigger trying to break into the business? Not necessarily just in the Providence area, because as you build a reputation, you have that to go on. But how did you find that experience as a touring rigger where now you're traveling to different locations where they don't know your background? They know, hey, this is the show coming in. It's actually easier as a female touring rigger, and I will explain why after I give some background information. Um, it was a lot harder first starting out because I'm physically very small, and um, compared to a six-foot dude, I just don't have the muscle or the stamina, quite frankly, and just have drive. So uh, trying to convince people that that was enough was incredibly hard, especially in the Providence area where it is very much a boys club. Um, in fact, the only reason I ever worked in the Providence arenas was because I had gained practice at Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods as an upriggar, and it took months. So on the local level, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and then as... It's weird. It's word travels fast about you as a uh, on a local level, especially if you're a woman. So that can work out to your advantage, and it did in the long run. But in the beginning, it, it did not. And the flip side to that is, as a touring female rigger, once I found one person, um, Billy Daves, who's a touring rigger, to give me a chance, then it just kind of exploded from there in a good way and I never felt like I had to justify my abilities as soon as I walked through a venue first thing in the morning. In fact that's really not what locals are prone to do anyway and most of what I received was at first, first maybe shock, oh there, there's a chick, but then afterwards it was oh well this is really cool, um, we, she gets to be our boss today and I've never, almost never had any trouble. Even in places like Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe where female laborers don't exist, um, I've been, it's been for the most part pretty okay there. Yeah. Cool. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it, it, it does. And, and I don't, you know, I do want to talk about other things. I don't want to uh, spend only time focusing on just what is one facet of who you are. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's unfair not only to you, but to others, because it's not just one characteristic that defines who we are as a person, as a rigor, as someone who works in, in the live event world. So I'm going to intersperse some of the questions that might be related to that specific topic so that it's not uh, solely focused on. But I, I do think there's... Um, a lot of information that you can share with others who are looking to do the same thing, whether that is someone who is just not physically, uh, how do I want to say it? 
um, smaller people. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, you can say capable. There's just some things I can't do. Like right. in the arenas in this country, the arenas in this country are built for people that are at least six feet tall. And the first time that I went up in the arena in Rotterdam, it's actually like right there, five minutes from where I live. I was completely fucked if I had to do something that required a bit of height and had to call other people to come help me. And so, so for those, know. so for those of you uh, of our listeners who are looking to get into rigging, why is someone who's not six feet tall going to have a more difficult time pulling a point? How how is the how is the arena set up to be disadvantaged for those individuals? Uh, in this particular case, um, just in this arena alone, and the one in Amsterdam too, maybe Providence too, actually, um, the baskets are all um, above your head. And in the case of, sorry, should I be more specific and speak as though they know nothing about rigging? Sure, sure, let's, let's, let's you know. <laughs> Okay. Or, or I can do it for you. So, so typically in arena, you walk on a beam, or right. it, it could be a catwalk. But in a lot of arenas, to save on expense, they don't do catwalks. You walk on the beam. You're attached to fall arrest in case you were to fall off the beam. You don't go splat, and that's our ultimate goal: is no one goes splat and equipment doesn't go splat. Yeah. Um, and typically, especially here in the states, you'll pull up the hardware you're going to use to hang the chain hoist and that's usually wire rope and you'll form what is called a basket or a loop around the beam with that piece of steel and a shackle and there's a, a process to doing that so that you can use both hands and in a situation where you really need six hands to do it um what yana was talking about is that instead of attaching your point to the beam you're walking on you're attaching it to a beam that's actually above your head and you're on a separate beam or catwalk or something so that's yeah. what she was referring to and that height difference if you're not tall enough you can't reach that upper beam as he's yeah. so in thank you that was really good uh so in the, the arena in rotterdam for instance um i walk on a regular i-beam but all of the baskets are house baskets which is genius, and they're just there, they live there, and they have um, what's called a stinger, which is typically a two-foot piece of steel attached to that loop so that you can actually reach it. Um, I can reach the stinger, but I can't reach the hook, the, I can't reach the snap hook to undo the basket, and I certainly can't reach the beam that that basket is on. So if I'm in a situation where I need to move a basket, the best I can do is slide it. And if I need to add another basket entirely, I have to either call somebody over uh, and have them do it, or I can um, clip a small, what do you call it? Um, I can clip a, a, a piece of a span set or uh, a daisy chain or any other sort of lanyard and hoist myself up and gain right. a few feet but then that becomes like a one foot in the loop one foot i don't know where i've haven't actually done it before i just know that other short people do it right yeah so they figure out a a, a method to adapt mm -hmm. to the environment because certainly you're not going to put a ladder up there um no. so 
I'll ask this question, which is that's the situation in which you have a disadvantage. Are there situations where you think that your height or your gender create an advantage for you? Any case where I have to fit into small spaces. I've been in rooms where it's very close, it's just very tight. And so I'm, I'm fine in it. A six foot guy could never, you know, be in some of the places that I've been. Um, and as far as my gender being an advantage, uh, yeah, I think if you meet somebody that is more open to diversity in the workplace and they are in a position to hire or at least vouch for you, then yeah, being a minority gender is great. That's how I got hired for Cirque du Soleil. This is because um, the head rigger for Taruk, I worked for him when he came through Providence. Uh, he and this guy called Zepp Leister. Lister? Leister? He's probably going to hear this and, and yeah, pronounce it's it. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going to butcher everyone's name in every podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's going to happen. So people should yeah. get used to it now. I'm going <laughs> to misspeak. I'm going to stumble over my own tongue. It's going to happen. So it's all right. Yeah. Uh, I met them and they, I was really lucky. They really like um, women working. They, um, they talked to me after I came down from the roof and um, were really happy with the job I did. And uh, Zepp's assistant, uh, his name is Tiza, uh, said, give me your resume. And then six months later, I got a call from him saying, can you be out here in a week? And I said, no, I can be out here in a month. And he said, okay. So then I was out with Cirque in a month. Awesome. Do you think for me as someone who often is looking for others to work with me on projects, I'd like to be altruistic and say, I don't care about unnecessary characteristics all I care about is can they do the job I need them to do? Can they do it efficiently? And can they do it in a manner where I don't feel I have to micromanage them? Can I trust them? Um, and I, I, I would tend to believe that many people in that hiring position are looking for the same thing. Do you think that you were working harder to prove yourself? Yes. To the men and that <laughs> and hence because of that because you were working harder and you were producing at a higher level than those around you that is what got you noticed yes um yeah so i think on the local level uh working twice as hard to prove that you are to be seen as though you are half as good that is um that's the bare minimum you have to do in order to keep working on the local level. And I found that very unfair and really angering. And But I found my work ethic didn't change whether I was working on the local level or with a tour. I still produce the same amount. And that is what gets you noticed. I think it would be safe to say that your work ethic is a constant and the variable is how others perceive your ability because you know my my opinion 
not only of you personally, but of others in general, is you have to have a certain amount of skill. Listen, I'll speak frankly. You can only bullshit your way so far until you get exposed. You can only sell yourself up to a certain level until someone says, okay, you said you could do this. I need you to go do this. And either you fail at doing it or you don't do it as well or you don't do it in the time frame, whatever you, you know, you oversold yourself. So there is a balance in there. Um, I feel like in our industry, too, just to go up a little bit is soft skills are incredibly important and they are not taught. Somebody once told me you could almost hire anybody for a tour as long as they're not an asshole. Because you can teach anybody any job if they're not a monkey, but you can't teach somebody not to be an asshole. Listen, uh, I got to tell you <laughs> something. If tours didn't let assholes onto the crew, then there would be no rigors. Right, but that's different than inviting somebody into your circle, which is the tour. True. And and <laughs> by the way, for those listening, that was a joke. Okay? <laughs> A joke about the perception of us rigors. Um, cool. So you had mentioned before some individuals who recognized your ability, wanted to work with you. So one of the questions I had was, who have been some of your mentors in rigging? Billy Dave's definitely. Um, he's, uh, I hope he listens to this. Billy, you were an asshole, but I'm glad you were um, because um, I'm serious. Uh, working with people that are difficult teach you to rush more off, if that makes sense. Um, have, working under somebody who's really hard on you and expects so much of you makes literally everything easier down the line. So I would have to give kudos to him for that. Um, Tita from Cirque du Soleil, who taught me how to properly advance shows, which means getting on the phone with house riggers, learning how to talk to them, um, effectively communicating when English is their second language. So, um, you know, as an American, I had to learn that there's international English, which I had to learn how to properly speak in order to talk to people who had English as a second language. Um, he taught me how to properly draw plots. Um, he taught me how to uh, cheat, I guess is the word. Um, when shoehorning a, a very large show inside a European arena, for example, um, you have to learn what corners you can get away with cutting. Um, not disregarding safety by any means, but you kind of have to know what you can get away with um, in order to get the show up in a timely manner. And Tizo said, he would say in, in this very thick, heavy Romanian accent, with rigging there is always a solution. And what he meant by that was, just because you can't figure it out one way doesn't mean that there isn't five more ways that are meh, but you can still get away with it. And that's a valuable lesson. That (laughs) concept 
is something that and and you've experienced this as someone who's taken my class before that when i talk about my journey getting into rigging that as a lighting designer i went into something that was and i'm using air quotes here was artistic you know lighting design you people tend to focus on the design component well there's there's both there is a artistic design aspect of lighting there's also a technical aspect of it which could be angles or the quality of light or color mixing there is a technical thing but there's this artistic thing and that i will joke i can't draw a stick figure with a straight edge like artistic ability in me is is not something i've ever had I joke about. However, there is art in solving rigging problems or engineering challenges, like, you know, fitting a show into a space that's not quite big enough. And how do you do that? And your constant is it can't go splat. And the variables are all the stuff you have to do it with. And so there is art in figuring out that solution. And that took a while for me to recognize and be comfortable with because I certainly, I didn't want to lose that art. That's something that I enjoyed creating by being involved in producing a show. And when I was on tour with pro wrestling, the high for me would be creating an entrance for a performer where when the music hit and you created a visual spectacle, everyone went crazy. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was awesome. Well, how do I get that in rigging? Besides the, you know, hey, let's do automation and have a whole bunch of stuff move and wow people that way. But how do I get that on a small corporate gig? It's by creating a beautiful solution to a technical challenge, being creative in that and being proud, being like, hey, that was cool that we solved that, whether it was you by yourself or as a team. Yeah. So I think that point that you brought up is very important that, being creative is a, an essential skill for a rigger and and using the variables to your advantage. And again, that constant should be never compromising the safety. Right. Um, so me think of safety island or England. Um, it's I think it's hard to be that creative in, in places like uh, like England or Australia where they're they're super duper safe. Um, or Germany, where they have to safety everything that doesn't have a 10 to 1 safety factor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and your, European standards tend to be more prescriptive, meaning yeah. you will do A, B, and C, versus uh, in the United States, our standards tend to be more performance-based. Um, and the idea behind that is... You don't want to limit people's options. If someone can figure out a great solution to a problem, as long as it has a minimum performance, and I un, I oversimplify it by saying nothing goes splat, then hey, you're you're good. Um, that's certainly a difference between the the geographic locations. Um, here's an easy one: Are you ETCP certified? Yes. What do you think are, or or let me rephrase, what inspired you to obtain this certification and have you found it to be useful in in your career? Um, yes, I found it to be useful. 
Uh, I was inspired to get it because I'm naturally a very curious person and I like math and I'm just a nerd like that. I got Donovan's book that's like the size of two Bibles and just blew right through it and did all of the math problems that I could and I just thought it was so cool that there were all these different ways of figuring the same problem out. Um, I got it mainly, I took the test because it, it was hard and I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, and I knew that having those tools at my disposal would help me in some way in the long run as a touring rigger, which was the ultimate goal. Uh, what was the second part to that question? Have I found uh, it to be Have you found it to be useful? Why did you do it? Those were the two questions, but it did make me think of a question of how do you think the, the, the certification is viewed internationally? Because you do spend most of your time out of the States currently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know there are people who are outside of the United States. Again, here's the, the issue is, you know, us in the States tend to be very self-centered and myopic. It's about <laughs> us. Um, but I know there are others who have obtained it, whether it was a personal challenge or not. Does it have, is there a favorable or disfavorable opinion of it internationally? No, um, it's not disfavorable at all. Actually, I think it's more disfavorable in the United States. And I think it's kind of spit on um, a lot, as mostly by people that think they can't do it. And to be honest, there are people that I have met that have certifications that don't know what the hell that they're doing. And I think the general consensus among people that don't like ETCP is that it's a waste of money and that it's there it's it's a test that you can pass and then put it on your resume and then some other idiot is going to huh he took a snapshot and some other somebody else will hire you not based on your experience but based on a test which is uh shitty i agree uh but internationally um it's not viewed like that it's not very well known if I go to England and say that, I'll have to say it's comparable to the NRC certification. Or if I go to Germany, I'll have to say it's comparable to whatever they have. Um, in Australia, you can be a certified rigger, uh, even in the entertainment industry, but they start you off getting certified as a industrial rigger. <clears throat> so I have to compare it to that. Um, right. And it generally helps, but it's not... Uh, an end-all indication of your skill. Yeah. I like that I have it. I'm really glad I did it. It helps me figure out what rules I can break, which is more important to me at times than knowing what rules to follow in terms of loading in a show or advancing a show. Right. Yeah, I think something that I'll mention a lot of times is, in my opinion, rigging is not a black and white subject. It's yeah. a, a very muddy, muddy gray, and a lot of it is based on risk assessment and a particular application of what you're doing. Um, and I think a lot of younger people who are looking to get into rigging initially are looking for roles. No. Yeah. Here's the rules that you have to that. follow. Uh, you know, an example I use all the time is using of of monofilament to rig. 
well, I'm certainly not going to use monofilament to hang anything of weight. But if a venue were to say, hey, we had an issue where monofilament broke and, and something fell and it scared us. So you can't use monofilament anymore. Well, you're making the balloon arch people's lives a real, real difficult thing because, you know, all they use is balloons and monofilament. There's a yeah. risk assessment. There's an evaluation of if it fails, what is the most likely result? And is that result something that we can deal with? Mm-hmm. If it's a balloon goes up to the ceiling, great. If it's, hey, this is going to fall and hurt someone, that's not acceptable. Yes. Um, speaking of ETCP, one of the requirements for it, and I, I believe for some other types of certification, certification internationally, is continuing education. What mm-hmm. do you do to get continuing education, whether it's specific to getting renewal credits for your ETCP or just a general expansion of your knowledge base what are some of the things that you've either been doing recently or or even topics that you really want to dive into well i can't take any classes over here because uh, i haven't found any offered in english and that's why i wanted to take your class a third time i think a while ago i'm pretty sure that <laughs> i'm pretty sure that the work experience i have covers it Actually, I should look that up. I don't know if I need continuing education, like if I need to take a class or. All right. So so here's the, the quick and dirty for everyone. When you get your ETCP certification, you have to qualify to take the test. You take the test. You passed it. Good job. Five years later, your certification is going to expire unless you renew it. In order to renew it, you have to get currently, and I say that just for a reference, 40 points. You get a point for every 100 hours of work experience, but that maxes out at 30 points. You then get points, and it's currently half a point for every hour of an unrecognized training program or instructor, or one point per hour from an ETCP-recognized program or trainer. So you need to do 10 hours. Now, you could do an OSHA 10 class and get five points from it, or you could do OSHA 30 and get 15 points from it. Or if you take one of those classes from some of the people now for you, specifically Yana, not being in the States, this is harder. But some IATSE locals are doing OSHA training where you would get more points because they're yeah. by recognized trainers. The point being, you do have to have some continuing education to renew your certification. But it is not very specific in what that education is. So if you take a... Uh, Sprat class, you might be able to use that uh, for continuing education. Don't quote me on that, but I believe you could. Certainly, if you take other things that relate to the subject matter, and I say that in a broad sense. I just remembered Eric Rouse taught a splicing course through Cirque du Soleil. Yes, he did. I took that, so I'm... And and he is a a recognized trainer, and a wonderful guy who we will eventually have on this podcast, Eric Rouse of Entertainment Training Center. I might be misquoting that, so I apologize. Um, But he is uh, another trainer, and he does a lot of trainings with Cirque. Um, He's been doing, and as we're recording this, 
We're in the middle of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, so we're all isolated. He's been doing some online trainings talking about trust with Jeff Reader from Clark Reader Engineering and Elmer Vitha of Reliable Design. Um, Some of those online things have been offering credits. So Eric's is. So um, so that that there's the long-winded answer of continuing education. But we diverted from what are some of the things either the the particular programs or the subjects that you are looking to acquire to put in your your toolbox for rigging? I haven't really done anything lately, to be honest. I still have uh, Donovan's book and that book that Bill Saps has edited, and those are the only two that I brought with me here from America. So aside from cracking them open from time to time, nothing. I've actually, because uh, all events here are canceled until September 1st, I've been getting into um, computer science and I recently finished my A-plus certification, which is like an entry-level IT certification. And uh, eventually I want to be a white hat hacker, so somebody who ethically hacks. Uh, So I've been teaching myself that uh, through you know, a bunch of Udemy courses and YouTube videos and talking with people in the industry and uh, talking with job recruiters and seeing what skills they're looking for. Um, partly because I really need a job and then other, otherwise because I'm a naturally curious person and I, I'm kind of looking to branch into something different. Cool. Um, I think... People who are, I, I, I kind of want to say naturally curious, but it's not curiosity. But I think there's a commonality for, for individuals like yourself or me or Eric, who we love knowledge. We love going out and learning new things and, and learning about those things. And sometimes it's not even the application of that knowledge, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of the the process of learning something new and learning new information being like kind of cool. Um, now a joke about people about me that people make is my ability to store completely random and useless information, um, about a lot of random topics, but it's just how my brain works. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's just completely entertaining and useless. Um, that in and of itself is useful. I mean, how, fucking boring would people be if they had nothing to talk about even if it's random shit that's you're at least adding to a conversation right Do you know what I mean? like yeah well-rounded people are more they're better companions they're better friends and they're better um candidates for getting hired because nobody wants to work with a dull person and i think that's important in a touring application because you i mean you spend so much time in close quarters and, <laughs> and, and and consistently. I mean, you are with the same people every yep. day for a long time period. Um, in the and, metal tube. <laughs> yes. For months. Yep. And so it's it's important that you have interpersonal communication skills and be able to just at times, hey, we're not going to talk about work. Because that is twenty four seven. 
talk about other things, do other things to entertain ourselves and, and just generally get along. And, and that is certainly a topic, you know, the Event Safety Alliance has done some podcasts about mental health issues within our industry. And that's another area, and we're not going to get into it in this podcast, but something to be aware of in terms of helping each other in in yeah. that long process. So, um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, change it up a little. Yeah. Do you see an increase in demand for automation in the future? If so, do you think it best for aspiring riggers to learn a bit about it? I ask this because at the beginning of my career, when I was trying to learn as much as I possibly could, learning automation never crossed my mind. And then I started touring and realized that I needed to know simple concepts in order to be able to effectively communicate with my coworkers. So how would somebody go about getting the base knowledge they need if they if if they want it so that's a lot of uh, a, a a lot to digest so i'm going to try to do it in a methodical order which is going to fail horribly um one i it depends on where you are in your career if you are in college or even in high school i mean i hope there are some young high school students who want to listen to this um I will certainly uh, say that um, the community at controlbooth.com uh, has a lot of high school students, a lot of high school teachers, as well as professionals on it. And there's a lot of good discussion on there where professionals can help educate individuals who are just breaking into the business. Um, and... So if you can catch them early, if you're, you're talking about a high school student who's like, oh, I, I think I want to get into technical theater and I like rigging, so I want to be a rigger. Um, if you're choosing to go to a college, certainly you want to look at a program that has some automation built into its technical design program. Um, we just recorded a, a podcast for the Event Safety Alliance talking about counterweight rigging. We recorded it in two halves. And in the second half, we started talking about uh, motorized rigging. And we were very careful to make a distinction between automation and motor motorized rigging. Because automation is, a, is, is more reliant on the control side of the system than just putting a motor on an object to assist you moving it. Mm -hmm. um, and... So if you're not even in the business or barely getting in the business, colleges are a good thing. If you're in the business and looking to get more experience with it, there's a couple of ways you can go. If you're in that college level, see if you can work with some of the really cool companies that are out there doing automation like Tate or uh, Creative Connors in Rhode Island. Um, it's a show rig as well. That might be another one. Show rig. Yep. Um they have a couple of different offices uh, around the states. Um, there's a lot of companies, too many, that I can't remember them all. But getting experience with that, or as you kind of did when you broke in as a rigger, see if if you're working local crews and tours are coming in, if you, you know, ask the steward, hey, can you put me on the automation crew to help with that so you can start to learn tangentially 
through your association with it. I, I never liked individuals in our industry that if someone who is trying to get in the business or learn a new skill asked a question would get a response of, just do what you're being told and we got to get the show done. I think there's an important need to ask the question at the right time and don't right. ask too, too many questions where you're slowing down the process. You don't want to ask an, a lot of questions when you're loading in TSO, for example. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I also think it's important for us to educate each other because it's through education that we keep each other safe. And if yeah. I educate someone who's green, new to the business, well enough, then I, I end up getting that end result I talked about before, which is I don't have to micromanage them. I don't have to double check everything they're doing. It makes my life easier. And that mindset of I got to protect all of my tricks and goodies because that person's going to take my job. Listen, if you're that afraid that someone's going to steal your job, then you're not doing all you can do to make sure you keep your job. You know, you, you're, you're working, being good at your job. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Again, it goes back to that. You, you oversold yourself. And if you're intimidated yeah. by the young guy, it, you know, I talk about this in my, my class. Joe Rogan has uh, a story that talks about when he broke into comedy, he would be standing in the wings looking at other comics. And the term they use for a comic who's doing really well is killing it. They're killing it tonight. Yeah. Look at these comics and be like, man, shit, he's killing it or she's killing it. And he would get jealous of that. He'd be like, but I want that. And it's easier said than done. But what he says is at some point he forced himself to shift his thought process. And instead of saying, why are they getting that? And why am I not? He said, what are they doing to get it? And how can I mimic it or do it better or do it different? How, what can I learn from them? And that's the point. And we're human. We all, you know, we all have id and we all want to have a certain amount of attention and, and praise. But you can get that and still figure out, hey, that person's doing a really good job. What can I learn from them? How can I incorporate that into my skill set and, and improve myself? Not be better than others, but better than you might have been previously, which should be the goal. You should always be wanting to improve yourself. So that was a really long-winded answer to how do you get into automation. Um, ask questions. Uh, find programs. Uh, before they were acquired by Tate, Fisher used to do trainings. They would do trainings on, and, I, and Tate still does trainings on Navigator, which is their control platform. Yeah. So you can, and especially now where a lot of trainings are being offered at either a reduced price or free online, do that stuff. Get the information. Find that balance, though, between education and book smarts and experience. And that's a, a critical thing is, is the application of the knowledge and learning that because experience is going to teach you, like Yana said, how to apply that knowledge in the pressure cooker which is the load in or the load out of an event um so maybe that answered the question i think so that's yeah that's um i learned a lot from my late from my last boss um just by asking questions um do you know lennon ba barahona lennon barahona sorry lennon. Mm, don't yeah. think directly huh no. 
he's out on, uh, he was out on uh, Buble. Um, but yeah, him or anyone else, really, I would just ask. Anytime I was working as a local, I would just ask roadies questions. How did you get here? Who did you work for? Did you have to work the shitty jobs before you got the good jobs? And the answer was more often than not, yes. And nope. it painted a really clear picture of what to expect and what um, steps that I needed to take, even if they weren't exactly in their footsteps. Pulling for ought through the mud is not necessarily a job given to someone because you're the low person on the totem pole. It's given to you because it has to get done and the person making yeah. decisions has other things to do to fulfill their job. It's not always personal is the point. Um, yeah. But I always teach in a building block method, which is understand the basics, get the foundation because the foundation is very important and then build off of that foundation and add more complicated parts as you go along. So, you know, when you're breaking into the business, you're going to have the tough jobs. And, and as we said at the very beginning, there's a reality is we all get older. We all physically change as we get older. We don't have the stamina. We don't have the strength. Um, and we work in a physical environment. You know, it takes a lot of physicality to load in a show. Um, so we typically give the younger people the heavier jobs because they're more capable of doing it. Um I so, have a, yeah. Uh, go on. No, go on. I'm just. I was going to ask you a question, yeah. but if you have one you want to ask now, go for it. I just have a really quick comment. Was as far as the physicality of it. One thing I've noticed about working in Europe, in the Netherlands, at least, everyone uses a shiv. Always, always use a pulley. There's no excuse yep. for not using a pulley, and it's not. <laughs> it's not uh, so much a safety issue for them as it is a uh, you. Why would you fuck up your back? And I I had this discussion with a friend of mine when we were up in the beams in, I think, Oberhausen, Germany, and I noticed uh, on the inn that they were setting shivs in only in certain places in the roof, and I was up with him on the out, and I said, well, why do you put it here and here? And um, the discussion turns to, well, what do you do in America? And I said, we don't use this. We don't use these. We make the baskets on the beams that we're walking on. Or in the case of the Dunkin' Donuts Center in Providence, you go like this with your hands until you the basket's up there. And he goes, well, why would you do that? And he goes, well, I, he said that. And then I said to him, because you're a pussy if, if, you, if you use a shiv. Why would you do the easy way in America? <laughs> and the next day, the next uh, load-in... Um, the same guy was next to me, and uh, I didn't have a shiv, and I was ready to just pull like I normally do. And he said, "No, no, no, come on!" Like he called to somebody from the ground to tie on a thing for me. It was the most life-changing thing ever. I was like pulling like this, and it was so great on my shoulders. I couldn't believe it. Uh, we, but, yeah, that's a, a huge difference between we, here and America. We all joke that you know none of us are getting super rich in this business, so we're going to be doing it until we're you know, not here anymore. Well, yeah. if you want to be doing that, yeah, it's a, it's a marathon. You got to figure out work smarter, not harder is a very yeah. common phrase of how can you make life easier? And the reality is I'm a big person about processes. I love to evaluate a, a project and figure out efficiencies 
to make it easier yeah. to do. Um, I hope I, I tend to think it's something I excel at doing. So it's actually faster. It's better to do it in different manners with a shiv than just muscling it. There are times where, Hey, you know, maybe yeah. muscling it is the right or the most efficient way. However, you can't do that in every application. So being smarter about it, being more ergonomic about it means you're going to work longer. You're going to work faster. Again, you're increasing your value because you can do it properly, safely, efficiently, all of those things. And that's, that's the goal because, you know, shows only have a finite amount of time before the audience walks in and wants to be entertained. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion about this as you have experience on experiences both domestically in the States and internationally is what's one of the areas within rigging that you think needs the greatest improvement. And that could be technological, cultural, any of that. That's tough. I've always just kind of accepted it as how it is. Um, it's definitely not an easy job as far as especially the hours go. I'm not a morning person at all. I fucking hate getting up at 3.30 in the morning to be in an arena by 5 a.m. to mark the floor. But it has to be done, so I do it. Um, so you can't really change that or improve it. I think, uh, if anything, um, the negativity in the environment has to change and the fact that it's a, still a boys club in so many areas has to change um, not just for um, the women but for maybe other men that don't want to take part in the dick waving contest um, because as shows get bigger you need bigger crews and it's gonna be required that you get along with a more and more diverse and growing crowd. I think the world is changing and it's definitely becoming more global and women are doing jobs traditionally assigned to men and we're only going to there's we're you're only going to see more of us <laughs> whether you like it or not. So I think people have to just get used to that and be more accepting. But I think that's also more of an American problem. I haven't really seen too much of that here in Europe. Yeah. I, I certainly think there's that perception of machismo is stronger in the States and that, yeah. you know, testosterone fueled gorilla pulling points is the joke. Um, do you think it's changing for uh, the better for women in America compared to Europe or Austria or at literally anywhere else? I think it's changing. I think people debate whether it's changing fast enough. And and that is a that's a difficult one because cultural change is a very slow process. Um I think it's slow because those who have the ability to speak the loudest don't necessarily do so. 
I think that um, people get bogged down in the minutia about the qualifications of a person. Um, <clears throat> I'll often joke that, you know, I, I work with a local high school helping to build their sets. And I'll joke that the the young ladies who are working on the crew are harder workers than any of the guys. Now, it's slightly different when you're a teenager. There's a whole lot of other things going on in your life. So, you know, yeah. what you want to do and staying focused is certainly a challenge. But um, I, I think it's slowly changing. I think we need to make further steps to advance it. I think there's equipment issues that we have to address. For instance, when I teach fall arrest and I tell people that your stock harness has a maximum weight capacity, but it also has a minimum weight capacity. So in the in the States, yes. it's 130 pounds. Well, for me, Christ, yes. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen 130 pounds since like second grade. Um, that's not an issue. I'm more concerned with the upper side, right? But for any person, whether it's a woman or a guy, but anyone who's petite and is near 130 pounds or 120 pounds, that's, that's an, it's an issue. Yeah. And and the issue is you can call most manufacturers and say, hey, I weigh 120 pounds. I need a different harness. And they'll do that. But I do – and, and – and, you get into that conundrum of supply and demand. If there were more women working who needed fall arrest, then all the manufacturers would make harnesses that were designed for a woman's physique, and it would be a stock item. The yeah. issue is, to date, the workforce needing fall arrest hasn't been women. So it's still a custom item to say, I think yeah. that needs to change. I think a manufacturer has to say, we're going to produce... Harnesses designed for different anatomy, and that's just it, it, that is just a physics difference where yeah. you can put material on different. And it it's has so important, Ethan. It's really fucking important. I know it's embarrassing to talk about, but like you got to rig to the worst case scenario, right? If I Absolutely. fall, I, sh I should be wearing the right harness. Exactly, and and if you've taken a, a rescue training, you know the harnesses stretch; they move well. A crossover style, an X style harness on a woman, or and here's where I was trying to get to, or a very large person, it's going to hurt more because yeah. more of your body is going to be in the wrong place. You know, guys joke about the leg straps being too close to their crotch and they're going to whack their kibbles and bits. Um, but it's the isn't same it, thing. Isn't it supposed to be for a guy? It's supposed to be it close is, to your crotch, right? Your harness should Usually how I describe it is it should be one half of a step away from restrictive. It wants oh, to be snug. Okay. If you can put things into your pocket, your harness is too loose. Yeah. And there's there are different manufacturers that are like, you shouldn't be able to put your fist through a loop. It should really just be your hands. It wants to be snug because the whole point is when you fall, if there's space, that's more distance you're going to fall before the webbing starts to slow you down before it it, it uh, resists the force. The other issue is if it's loose, you don't have control of where that strap is exactly going. So if it's loose because you wanted a little more room for the boys as you're walking the beam, 
and you fall, that loose strap could actually wrap itself around something. And the same for ladies in the in the upper chest area. If it grabs something it's not supposed to do, it's going to do more damage than it should. Yeah. So you want to make sure your harness is fitted properly. So back to what I was saying is, I think man- there are some manufacturers who could do a better job of designing products that are needed that would open up the opportunity. I know quite a few women riggers who, when we talk about fall arrest, get very frustrated because I can't offer a good answer of, here's a product I recommend. Here's a product line. It's yeah. a, you got to reach out to the manufacturer and and maybe I can do more to, to find out manufacturers that do harnesses for, for women that are not just pink. <laughs> Who cares about the color? It's about the functionality. Um, I think there needs to be more of a knowledge. I think a lot of people wouldn't even know to ask these questions, either men or women. They don't think, I mean, the only reason I found out how to properly wear a harness is because Bill Sapsis saw something on social media, which was a picture of me in the roof. And he said, you're wearing your harness wrong. And if you fall, you're going to hurt yourself. And so yep. he was kind enough to have a phone conversation and say, this is what you should be doing. But the mindset, at least when I was still getting into it in the beginning, was just throw a person in the harness and then see what kind of job they can do without properly um, teaching them about the severity or implications of what they were doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that is one of the areas of huge growth in our industry has been fall arrest design and training and rescue training. Um, I worked on a project last summer for a, uh, uh, outdoor event where, um, I did site specific training, which is what you're supposed to do for, mm-hmm. for the crew of, okay, here's the equipment we have. If someone falls from the roof system, how are we getting them down? How do we do that? And coming up with a specific plan and then practicing it and making sure we could do yeah. it because when it happens, that's not the time to pull out the manual. Um, yeah. Another thing that uh, the discussion of harnesses made me think. Happy second is, nature is very important. Yes, exactly. In everything. Um, equal does not necessarily mean identical or the same. Um, right. And I think that's an important thing, which is we should treat people equally. We should give people equal chances, but that doesn't necessarily mean the exact same. So going to the harness design is different anatomy should have equal opportunity uh, for harness design, but it's not going to be the same. You know, the same harness doesn't work for every single person. Um, and okay. Yeah, and it's okay. It, you know, I, I think we try to intellectualize ourselves past things sometimes when in the reality is at certain points, again, going back to the, you know, upriggered stereotype is you know at some point we are animals we are a species we have certain things that we can't control and you know stupidity is one of them um i have a question for you which is um what is your biggest fear as a rigger besides dropping something oh man that's probably it that's why I excluded that as a choice, because that's the obviously the first choice of any rigor. Well, I don't want to drop anything. That's the easy one. Falling? Okay. That's basically, yeah. I don't really think about, um, I'm going to sound like such a pretentious asshole here, but I, whatever. I don't think about anything else except not dropping things when I'm uprigging. 
That's just what I've been taught to do. And then the second thing, well, no, sorry, the first thing is my safety. The second thing is not dropping anything on anybody else. And those are, I am, you know, I'm not the bravest person in the world, and I can only do the job in the roof if I clear my head and just keep those things at the forefront. So, so that's, that's all I think about. Are you afraid Otherwise, of I can't do the job. Are you afraid of no, heights? No, but I was at first. I almost, I almost threw up on my um, asshole business agent when I first went up in the roof. It was really awesome. And I uh, discovered what vertigo was at first. I think this story should be heard by a lot of people because it'll really... Uh, I think a lot of people have this idea that oh, you should just go up and be able to do it. Otherwise, if you can't do it the first time, then you shouldn't be allowed up there. No, people need practice. I needed practice. The ground kept doing this um, when I went, when I was staring at it. Uh, so, so that was a, a lot of fun. Uh, and, I got nauseous. Uh, and the big the took a to while. interrupt the big joke is no one can see this but she was waving her hand towards and away from the floor indicating that it felt like the floor was coming closer and further away from her yeah. as she looked down. Yeah, that's what it Radio. was, and it took a while before I could uh, walk across the whole beam. Yeah. So just keep trying, kids. <laughs> Especially the ladies, if you're scared, just keep, uh, you know, just accept the fear. And it's a healthy fear. Uh, it's what enables you to, to, to keep yourself safe, learn to harness it, and then move. Yeah. I, I think you, you, you actually answered one of the questions I had for you specifically, which was, what advice would you give to other women looking to do the same thing to break in the business? But you kind of just answered that, you know, with your last statement. Yeah. Um, so, hey, look at that. I'm going to check that one off my list. Um, I would right. say go ahead and not be afraid of making mistakes as well. Make all the mistakes because that's how you learn as long as you don't hurt anyone. Right. Absolutely. It's how we learn. We learn from our mistakes. Yeah. Um, hopefully the mistakes don't, as you said, hurt other people because, you know, that would be bad. Um, so I have a completely silly question, which is um, yeah. not the silliest question I'll ask, but just one of them. Um, what's your favorite rigging tool right now or no, any tool? My favorite rigging tool, I've got some pretty sweet carabiners. I, it's, they're, really, <laughs> they're really satisfying to open and close. They're the three-way kind where you have to pull down and then twist and then open them, and they're just my favorite ones. Um, so I always keep those with me. I have this uh, pretty sweet bag called, uh, Cura I think it's called Courant. It's a it's a, a rock climbing bag, but it's it's like an OCD person's dream. I'll send you a link to it. I believe it's German made, and it's just got all of the loops for all of your carabiners. It's got a pocket for everything. Yeah, my carabiners in my bag. Oh, and my um my Grion because I do a lot of uh, 
positioning and because it's brand new and shiny. So those yeah. three. Yeah. Retail therapy is always a good thing. It's so expensive, man. <laughs> that is true. I, uh, I acquired a, a new battery-operated swaging tool a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh. it, it's, you know, I've, I've joked that there are a few tools that when I left the big corporation that I missed, you know, that I didn't have anymore. And one was a portaban, the other was a mag drill, and then the third was the battery-operated swaging tool. So I, uh, I acquired one a couple of weeks ago, and it's updated from the previous one that I used to use. It was expensive. But yeah, it was fun when it arrived. I was like, "Ooh, it's Christmas! I got a new tool and a toy." And I went to the basement, and I was like, "Oh, I can swage stuff for no reason." Um, you know, anything made by Hilti makes me really happy too. They've got some great distos, and they've got a great um, laser level that we used on Marvel. It's like a thousand dollars, but I, I wanted it. I don't know what I would use it for, but it was I, it was nice. If you spend enough time working with me, people learn I love my lasers. Oh, my. It's everything. Yeah. People are like, you know, it would be faster if you got the tape measure. Nope, I got to use the laser. Um, so you had talked <laughs> earlier about um, what you were doing now, what education you were doing, and that you, you're, you're continuing to evolve. Um, so this question may be different now with that information but i was going to ask you what's your dream job as a rigger my my dream job as a rigger is probably just to tour no more than six months out of the year i want to keep touring i don't care if i'm ahead or a second or just the box pushing rigger i just love being on the road but i can't do it year round physically i just can't what are what are some of the tours that you've worked on? You had mentioned Cirque. What else have you done? I've done Marvel. I was on a, a shitty tent show uh, called Peter Pan. That was my first tour. And then my latest tour was um, with, oh, I did Three Doors Down in the States a couple of years ago. And recently I was out with Kiss for two months when they did their European run. That was nice. That's like my 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 dream is to no more than six months out of the year do a rock and roll tour tour yeah um this question may be kind of maybe too similar to when i asked before but um it was where do you see the rigging industry going uh, i was going to ask you that Ah, see, great minds. I was going to ask you, what do you think the future of entertainment is? But let me answer your question because it's more specific. The where do I see rigging going? I see a lot more automation involved as shows get more complex. I see, um, yeah, I see bigger shows. Uh, I see more of a need for people that can work on motors. Uh, Definitely over the next 20 years, I see a greater need for upriggers just everywhere, especially when this recovers, this pandemic. Um, I have a feeling that next year the industry is going to explode and we will be incredibly shorthanded. So I, I see a demand. I think, <laughs> there, 
I think with everything, there's going to be an overcompensation. There's going to be a need. People are going to want to, you know, be out of their houses for, you know, six weeks at a time. And it's, you know, the idea of, of um, Burning Man type thing where it's like, oh, I just got to get out of the house now yeah. Um, yeah. to overcompensate for for what we've all been experiencing. Um, yeah, certainly I think it's going to it's going to be difficult uh, on a staffing side and in a condensed time frame yeah so it's definitely gonna happen happen in this country when things catch up because uh this is like the the entertainment epicenter of europe which right. i didn't know until after i moved here <laughs> just the amount of conventions the fact that we have two major port cities uh yeah so when it comes back i think it's going to come back pretty strong so what do you think the future of entertainment is? Will we ever recover? Or I guess when? Because will sounds a bit too many. Well, you could ask both. Um, yes, we will recover. Um, I have a former colleague who posted a video on YouTube a couple of weeks ago talking. Uh, and basically, he started the, the video saying that, um, you know, entertainment theater whatever you want to call it has been you know it has been dying for the last four thousand or six thousand years that it it's never going to go away i think that is as we talked about earlier there are certain basic human needs um and and yes we have tendencies people can be extroverted or introverted they don't like big crowds but we need forms of entertainment to continue to live. Yeah. And so for a large portion of the population where that is going out and interacting with other people, being social, I think that's very critical. I think we don't have enough data currently. So we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, the 28th of April, 2020. Um, in the United States, New York, Massachusetts are s- still on the tail side of our peaks. So we're still basically in quarantine. You're not supposed to go out. I'm just setting a frame for people who either are listening to this in 20 years and are like, what are they talking about? Or you live under a rock currently. Um, in which case, you're lucky. But Yes, exactly. <laughs> Keep, go back under the rock. You're doing fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But currently, I think there's a lack of data that allows us to make educated decisions about how we're going to be able to get back together. There's a lot of misinformation or not even misinformation because that makes it sound nefarious. There's just a lot of lack of data in terms of how is the virus spread? How is it not spread? How can we protect ourselves? So if we take the very common things, which is, hey, we know if we keep people physically separated it significantly reduces the chances of transmitting the disease. If you stop there, don't get into do gloves and masks help, do sanitizing surfaces. But if we just stop there and say that is what we do know, an easy way of reducing transmission, then you're talking about for theatrical-based productions, seating every eight or nine people and every third row to create that distance. I was having a discussion with a friend what does that do for ticket prices? Like if, if companies are still trying to make their money, 
Yeah. Are you now increasing ticket prices because you don't have the volume? Um, so I think there are a lot of things that are dependent on what data we get about what's going on. If we find out that the the the, the Penn Medical their vaccine that's based on their Mars and SARS cov zero um was built on if we find out that hey in six months that's ready to go and it's working that changes things as we get you know more data but it's hard to see right now but without a doubt things will come back people want to go out and be entertained people want to forget about their trials and tribulations of the day whatever they are um, they want to interact with other people. Um, I just think it's going to take some time for us to figure out how do we do that without compromising the the effort and the work that we've put into this. Yeah. Sometimes it, it feels like, you know, when will this fucking end? I've been in my apartment for over two months now. And... Uh, it's so depressing. But then I try to cheer myself up by saying, you know, it's human nature to want to tell stories. And we've been doing that for ever since we could draw on caves. Exactly. So, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 There's telling stories, recording history and, and, and interacting. Um, so I'm not going to ask one question that I had because I think we kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the question is, which was how do you want others to view you within the industry? And that was really related to, to you being, as you said, in that minority group of women um, in our industry. A, I think in our discussion, we've kind of answered that and B in hindsight, it kind of makes me think of, well, isn't the answer is just like everyone else. Like, why do I need to be viewed differently? But I don't want to make that presumption for anybody either. I want to be viewed as I felt viewed when I was sending my resume out to companies here. And that was, are you qualified? All right. Your resume looks good. Great. Here's the first gig. So, yeah, I, I do want to be viewed as anybody else. I would like, you know, if there's something that is at a disadvantage to me, like my height, I would like that to be acknowledged. Um, you know, we all have things that set us at a disadvantage or an advantage, and we need to talk about our differences. But I don't think that, um, as you said earlier, that should be the one defining thing about you. So I guess it's a marriage of both, of seeing someone in, in seeing what makes them different and then I either accepting it or uh, or figuring out how to work that to your advantage. Yeah. Awesome. All right. I have, I only have one more question, but I want that to be the last question. So do you have any more questions that you want to pose? No, I have something to add earlier. Sure. We were talking about, um, Things that I believe need improvement, I would like to mention two. One, and they kind of go actually hand in hand, and they both relate to the pandemic that's going on now. I think there needs to be more support for the mental health of people in our industry. I don't think that it's talked about enough, and 
um, especially for people with families or even just people with partners, we need to talk about the implications of being thrown off the road and told to go sit home for six months. It's, it's pretty serious. Yep. And then another thing uh, that I think needs work is um, greater financial stability from the U.S. government. Um, over here, I've gotten a small stipend uh, already, and I have it for the next three months, and I can probably apply for more um, if I need it. And the response from this government was very quick. Um, I've been watching what's going on in the United States, and it's uh, it doesn't seem adequate at all, to put it nicely. And especially for people like me that are freelancers, I, what the fuck? <laughs> like how it's hard to prove how many hours you work. It's hard to prove what your hourly sal hourly wages when you work for multiple employees. It's um, you know what kind of contract are you under? There's there's, there's not enough acknowledgement is given to the fact that there are freelancers in the United States working in our industry. And uh, we need to talk about it because now these people are fucked. And I, you know, going back to the, one of the questions we just answered of, of how do we come back for this? Will we come back from this? I hope that this brings to the forefront when things start building up again. And this is, again, specific to the states of the individuals knowing their rights as being treated as an independent contractor versus an employee. And, you know, I left uh, my career of over 20 years back in the beginning of 2019 when this pandemic started. Yeah, there's a part of my brain that said, man, if I hadn't left, maybe I'd be unemployed right now still. But at least I would have unemployment benefits, whereas I own my own company within Massachusetts. That wasn't available to me. Now, I can't yeah. file for unemployment through the state. Um, maybe that changes how people perceive, hey, you know what? If something were like this to happen again, that's another reason why it's important for me to be classified correctly. And that's a point. Or do I start an LLC? Do I do things to help protect myself if something like this happens again just for that safety net so maybe that's a positive that will come out of it i hope so absolutely yeah all right well i saved the best for last and this is only going to work once as this is the first podcast with a guest obviously if i do this uh question again it's People are going to know it. So here's the biggest surprise. I'm, I'm making a big build here. What is your best or worst rigging joke? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, give me a minute. Mm. God damn it. Wow. Way to put me on the spot. Don't worry, folks. Dead air can be edited out. Okay, yeah, good. I need I need a minute. God, it had to do with like the difference between a rigger and God. Do you want the punchline to that one? Yeah. 
What's the difference between rigor and God? Rigor and God. God doesn't walk around thinking he's a rigor. I thought it had, oh man, I thought it had something to do with like one or the other being fallible. Oh, okay. My best rigging joke is who, how can you tell who the rigor is at a party? How? (laughs) Don't worry. He'll tell you. Hey! (laughs) There we go. That's my best one because it's the only one I know. (laughs) Hey, if you keep listening to the podcast in the future, maybe you'll learn some more. Oh, I hope so. So, I think that has been a wonderful time talking with you. And Mm. I think I learned a lot. I hope you learned something and I hope our listeners learned something. Um, Thank you so very much for participating in this and being uh, willing to go on this crazy journey with me as I launched this podcast. It was awesome. Um, Again, thank you, Yana. And do you have any last words? Uh, Yeah, we will all get through this somehow and at some time. And uh, just, I guess, keep in mind it's important for all of us to lean on each other. So we all have phones and and message apps. So check in with your your friends every once in a while. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thanks for everyone for listening. And until next time, I have no real closing thing. So I've been using, you know, keep the pin in the shackle. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. Later. Thanks, Ethan. Bye. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.